Chapter Twenty Two of In the Cage by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Howlett. Eighteen days elapsed, and she had begun to think it probable she should never see him again. He too then understood now. He had made out that she had secrets and reasons and impediments that even a poor girl at the P.O. might have her complications. With the charm she had cast on him lightened by distance, he had suffered a final delicacy to speak to him, had made up his mind that it would be only decent to let her alone. Never so much as during these latter days had she felt the precariousness of their relation, the happy, beautiful, untroubled original one, if it could only have been restored, in which the public servant and the casual public only were concerned. It hung at the best by the merest silken thread, which was at the mercy of any accident and might snap at any minute. She arrived by the end of the fortnight at the highest sense of actual fitness, never doubting that her decision was now complete. She would just give him a few days more to come back to her on a proper impersonal basis, for even to an embarrassing representative of the casual public, a public servant with a conscience did owe something, and then would signify to Mr. Mudge that she was ready for the little home. It had been visited, in the further talk she had had with him at Burnmouth, from garret to cellar, and they had especially lingered, with their respectively darkened brows, before the niche into which it was to be broached to her mother that she must find means to fit. He had put it to her more definitely than before, that his calculations had allowed for that dingy presence, and he had thereby marked the greatest impression he had ever made on her. It was a stroke superior even again to his handling of the drunken soldier. What she considered that in the face of it she hung on at Cocker's for was something she could only have described as the common fairness of a last word. Her actual last word had been, till it should be superseded, that she wouldn't forsake her other friend, and it stuck to her through thick and thin that she was still at her post and on her honor. This other friend had shown so much beauty of conduct already that he would surely, after all, just reappear long enough to relieve her, to give her something she could take away. She saw it, caught it at times, his parting present, and there were moments when she felt herself sitting like a beggar with a hand held out to an almsgiver who only fumbled. She hadn't taken the sovereigns, but she would take the penny. She heard in imagination, on the counter, the ring of the copper. "'Don't put yourself out any longer,' he would say, "'for so bad a case. You've done all there is to be done. I thank and acquit and release you. Our lives take us. I don't know much, though I've really been interested.' about yours, but I suppose you've got one. Mine, at any rate, will take me, and where it will. Hey-ho! Good-bye. And then once more, for the sweetest, faintest flower of all. Only, I say, see here. She had framed the whole picture with a squareness that included also the image of how again she would decline to see there. Decline, as she might say, to see anywhere, see anything. Yet it befell that just in the fury of this escape she saw more than ever. 
He came back one night with a rush, near the moment of their closing, and showed her a face so different and new, so upset and anxious, that almost anything seemed to look out of it but clear recognition. He poked in a telegram very much as if the simple sense of pressure, the distress of extreme haste, had blurred the remembrance of where in particular he was. But as she met his eyes, a light came. It broke indeed on the spot into a positive conscious glare. That made up for everything, since it was an instant proclamation of the celebrated danger. It seemed to pour things out in a flood. Oh, yes, here it is. It's upon me at last. Forget, for God's sake, my having worried or bored you, and just help me, just save me, by getting this off without the loss of a second. Something grave had clearly occurred. A crisis declared itself. She recognized immediately the person to whom the telegram was addressed, the Miss Dolman of Parade Lodge to whom Lady Berdine had wired, at Dover, on the last occasion, and whom she had then, with her recollection of previous arrangements, fitted into a particular setting. Miss Dolman had figured before and not figured since, but she was now the subject of an imperative appeal. Absolutely necessary to see you. Take last train Victoria if you can catch it. If not, earliest morning, and answer me direct either way. Reply paid, said the girl. Mr. Buckton had just departed, and the counter-clerk was at the sounder. There was no other representative of the public, and she had never yet, as it seemed to her, not even in the street or in the park, been so alone with him. Oh, yes, reply paid, and as sharp as possible, please. She affixed the stamps in a flash. She'll catch the train, she then declared to him breathlessly, as if she could absolutely guarantee it. I don't know. I hope so. It's awfully important. So kind of you. Awfully sharp, please. It was wonderfully innocent now, his oblivion of all but his danger. Anything else that had ever passed between them was utterly out of it. Well, she had wanted him to be impersonal. There was less of the same need, therefore, happily for herself. Yet she only took time, before she flew to the sounder, to gasp at him. You're in trouble? Horrid, horrid! There's a row! But they parted on it in the next breath, and as she dashed at the sounder, almost pushing in her violence the counter-clerk off the stool, she caught the bang with which, at Cocker's door, in his further precipitation, he closed the apron of the cab into which he had leaped. As he rebounded to some other precaution suggested by his alarm, his appeal to Miss Dolman flashed straight away. But she had not on the morrow been in the place five minutes before he was with her again, still more discomposed and quite now, as she said to herself, like a frightened child coming to its mother. Her companions were there, and she felt it to be remarkable how, in the presence of his agitation, his mere scared exposed nature, she suddenly ceased to mind. It came to her, as it had never come to her before, that with absolute directness and assurance they might carry almost anything off. He had nothing to send. She was sure he had been wiring all over. And yet his business was evidently huge. There was nothing but that in his eyes, not a glimmer of reference or memory. He was almost haggard with anxiety, and had clearly not slept a wink. 
Her pity for him would have given her any courage, and she seemed to know at last why she had been such a fool. "'She didn't come,' she panted. "'Oh, yes, she came. But there has been some mistake. We want a telegram.' "'A telegram?' One that was sent from here ever so long ago. There was something in it that has to be recovered. Something very, very important, please. We want it immediately. He really spoke to her as if she had been some strange young woman at Knightsbridge or Paddington, but it had no other effect on her than to give her the measure of his tremendous flurry. Then it was that, above all, she felt how much she had missed in the gaps and blanks and absent answers how much she had had to dispense with. It was now black darkness save for this little wild red flare. So much as that she saw, so much her mind dealt with. One of the lovers was quaking somewhere out of town, and the other was quaking just where he stood. This was vivid enough, and after an instant she knew it was all she wanted. She wanted no detail, no fact. She wanted no nearer vision of discovery or shame. "'When was your telegram? Do you mean you sent it from here?' She tried to do the young woman at Knightsbridge. "'Oh, yes, from here, several weeks ago. Five, six, seven. He was confused and impatient. Don't you remember?' "'Remember?' She could scarcely keep out of her face at the word the strangest of smiles. But the way he didn't catch what it meant was perhaps even stranger still. I mean, don't you keep the old ones? For a certain time. But how long? She thought she must do the young woman, and she knew exactly what the young woman would say, and still more wouldn't. Can you give me the date? Oh, God, no. It was some time or other in August, toward the end. It was to the same address as the one I gave you last night. Oh! said the girl, knowing at this the deepest thrill she had ever felt. It came to her there, with her eyes on his face, that she held the whole thing in her hand, held it as she held her pencil, which might have broken at that instant in her tightened grip. This made her feel like the very fountain of fate, but the emotion was such a flood that she had to press it back with all her force. That was positively the reason, again, of her flute-like Paddington tone. "'You can't give us anything a little nearer?' Her little and her us came straight from Paddington. These things were no false note for him. His difficulty absorbed them all. The eyes with which he pressed her, and in the depths of which she read terror and rage and literal tears, were just the same he would have shown any other prim person. "'I don't know the date. I only know the thing went from here, and just about the time I speak of, it wasn't delivered, you see. We've got to recover it. End of chapter 22